Hello, and welcome to the Tip of the Iceberg podcast. I'm Amy Souter, an editor with Produce Market Guide, PMG for short, and retail editor at The Packer, two trade publications in the fresh produce industry. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, I chat with Abby Pryor, Chief Commercial Officer of Bright Farms, based in Irvington, New York, and it's a high-tech indoor farming company, part of the growing controlled environment agriculture sector, or CEA. She starts with the company's recent acquisition of Leaf Farms in New Hampshire. That's Leaf, all lowercase, with L-E, with a line over the E, is a horizontal line, F. And it's in New Hampshire, and it has some surprising statistics considering the small states in that area. These CEA companies have different ways of growing, such as hydroponic, aeroponic, in soil, and even aquaponic that uses the nutrients of fish. And with various sunlight and LED systems, vastly different technologies, and business structure. But this category has exploded the last two years with all of the supply chain woes, with labor shortages and soaring freight prices. Since, by the very nature of CEA, they're located close to the end user, usually the retailer. And these companies often handle the whole supply chain in their own vertically integrated system. What does this mean for retail suppliers, buyers, managers, and executives? Let's hear it from Abby Pryor herself. Hi, I'm Amy Souter, the retail editor at PMG and The Packer, and I'm with my colleague Tom Karst, editor of The Packer. And our guest today is Abby Pryor, Chief Commercial Officer at Bright Farms. Welcome. Thank you. So first off, we would love, love to hear your, the, the news of the acquisition of, do you pronounce it LEAF? In- yeah, you do pronounce it LEAF Farms, spelled L-E-F. And this summer, in August of this year, Bright Farms acquired LEAF Farms. It's a, it's a one-acre um, growing, growing space farm in Loudoun, New Hampshire, they uh, amazingly, for just an acre, are the, were the number four indoor grower of salads in the country. <laughs> well, they've, they've got their technology tuned up, don't they, then? They certainly do. They'll finish the year um, between about 7 and $8 million in retail sales, which is so impressive from the small farm that they've been working with. And, you know, really strong customers in New England. So, you know, we, we acquired the business over the summer and um, plan to put about another 12 acres of, of growing space right there on that site in New Hampshire. Wow. So if they're doing that well with just one acre, then that bodes well for 12 additional acres? Yeah, yeah, the sky is the limit. I think we're seeing that the consumer is ready to make the change um, to a fresher, cleaner, pesticide-free indoor salad. And we're seeing that really all over the East Coast and the Midwest where we operate our Bright Farms farms. And our and our you know greatest challenge in 2021 has really been having enough capacity to meet the needs of consumers. 
uh, in the markets where we grow and, and where we are partnered with really strong retailers who are kind of leading the way in the salad category. So um, we're off to a great start with Leaf. The team with Leaf stayed with us. Um, they did an excellent job building the brand there in, in New England. And now many of them are continue to support the Leaf brand, but also the Bright Farms brand as well. So when in the, in the New England area, when you see, when you go to the retailers, uh, will the packaging still say Leaf Farms or will it now say Bright Farms? It still says Leaf Farms. Uh, you know, there are so many consumers in the New England market that know and love the Leaf brand and the really unique products that, that they grow there at that farm in New Hampshire. And so, um, you know, we wanted to make sure that we didn't upset the apple cart. It was a really successful business already. And we are trying to make sure that we just give the LEAF team the resources and the support to continue to grow. Um, and, you know, we're, we're trying to make sure that, that we don't make any, uh, any mistakes with the business as we do it. So we know that indoor, high-tech indoor greens farms are just exploding, you know, the last, well, several years, but then of course the last year or two. Um, but uh, what is it about, is it the, the maybe wealthier market in New England or, um, or is the, the operations, what is it about the way they do business? Yeah, or I think it's a couple of things in New England. I think when you think about it just from a geographic perspective, they already were, you know, the farthest away from the, the salad bowl of the West. So product was already traveling the farthest to that market. And it has a real impact to quality. And I think there are just really strong retailers as well in New England that got behind um, local and indoor farming really early. And we see New England as the most established market for indoor farming in the country. Uh, it sort of started early, has had really strong customer and consumer adoption. And it's really just now about making sure that there's enough capacity in the market to keep up with the growth. Yeah, so Little Leaf is the, the largest player up in that market. Gotham Greens has a farm up in, up in New England as well. Um, and there are a couple of players that are sort of in the New York area that ship products north. But I would say um, Leaf and Little Leaf um, were the, the largest players in, in New England. And is Canada a competitor too? Not, not um, it's so much with indoor. Um, you know, the, the indoor greens to this point are largely coming from the U.S. Okay. Um, did you have a question, Tom? Oh yeah, I was just—I was thinking about you know we hear so much about supply chain challenges and good to good to visit with you, Abby. Um, what what's it been like for your operation? Do you also face some of those bottlenecks that we hear about? You know, for the Western growers and, and exporters out there, what what kind of challenges has has Bright Farms encountered with with the way uh, the supply chain has operated? You know, during the pandemic and and now, I guess. Yeah, that's actually, while we've had many challenges during the pandemic, as, as have all uh, produce companies of any, of any size or scale, 
Um, I would say that the, our, our logistics and the distribution has probably been less of an impact for us. The majority of our product goes out on our trucks driven by our drivers. And it's a relatively short, uh, short distance. We try to keep the greens within about four hours from the farm. We do use third-party logistics providers, you know, if, if we've got a lot of customer loads going out on a single day. But for the most part, it's our trucks and our drivers, you know, going out for a couple hours and back. So the very nature of the way this business works is an advantage during all the challenges Certainly, certainly. Um, yeah, we have we have really um, benefited from our ability to, you know, insulate our farms from the outside world as best we could. We were really careful about exposure to COVID and any spread amongst um, staff at our farms. Um, so we we started very early. If our if our farm staffs had any exposure outside of work, of giving them paid time off letting them take the time um, to get through a quarantine at home and ensuring that we kept our farms running throughout the pandemic. Um, and, and, and so, you know, we were lucky in that way. You know, I often say our customers were not so lucky. They weren't able to sort of shut their doors and keep everybody else out. They were, they were doing the harder job of feeding the population, right? Feeding the rest of us and going to work and restocking shelves at a time when we were able to sort of keep everybody outside, every, anyone external, we were able to keep out of our farms. So our goal throughout the pandemic was to just create as much consistency and, you know, as much, um, you know, business as usual for our customers as we possibly could. And I think we did a good job of that. And I think, you know, the way our model works was, was really helpful in that. The short supply chain, um, you know, the single processing facility, um, we seed, we grow, we harvest, and we ship all from one location. So we have a lot of control over, over our whole system. And, and, you know, of course, it wasn't easy, but we, um, we were able to get through the pandemic um, and drive a considerable amount of growth through that time. Yeah. I'm one of those people who works from home and I often make my own lunch. And just yesterday I was making a simple peanut butter and jelly or almond butter and strawberry jam sandwich on whole wheat bread. And I thought I would add some fresh produce to it because it was easy. I just threw in some carrots and some purple grapes. And I was noticing that as I bit into the grape, one, they were very big, and then they were a light purple color, and I was just struck by how sweet they were, just really sweet. They just seemed a lot sweeter than I remembered them being when I was a child. I have to cut them into not just halves, but quarters for my toddler because um, he's kind of had a hard time getting them down. And that brings us to an exclusive tip of the iceberg interview with Sunview Marketing's Mitch Wetzel on innovation and the future of table grapes, which should be very interesting. Listen up. We are speaking with Mitch Wetzel, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Sunview Marketing International, to talk about 2021 innovation and in table grapes and what we can expect in the future. 
How are you doing today, Mitch? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I would love to start with what Sunview means by your single source. Well, that's something that we've kind of come to focus on over the last few years. And really, it boils down to this. It's one family, one grower, and one stop shop. We cover a broad spectrum of products in the table grape category, but uh, there's no outside fruit that comes through. Innovation is such a broad topic, and I would love for you to kind of elaborate on how does it relate to the table grape growing in California? Well, it's born really out of necessity right now. Um, We're struggling quite a bit with labor challenges, not only the cost of labor, but the availability of labor, skilled labor. You know, table grapes are very focused and a very much a hand labor product. We've got folks that work for us for over 40 years. And that labor pool is dwindling. The costs keep going up, wages keep going up, and that's presenting challenges. And then obviously water is a big topic in California right now too. Overall regulation is a big topic. We've got to figure out a way of doing things smarter, not harder. We've got to be innovative. Otherwise, we'll kind of shrivel up and die. Can you talk a little bit to me about sustainability within the table grape industry? You know, we want to be a good steward, uh, first and foremost, to to our teammates, our associates that that work for the company. The family thinks it's very important to make sure that they have a safe and stable environment to work in. And then they have longevity, right? And a career. The second thing is, is really the land and water piece on the stewardship. We have a pretty comprehensive water plan uh, where we have a good blend of open ground and planted ground. So I think we're in a a much more advantageous position versus other permanent crop growers because we are, we do have a strategy and frankly that strategy started 25 or 30 years ago. What about your proprietary brands? Well, again, that's another part of the stewardship and the innovation, right? So we have our own breeding program. I believe it started over 40 years ago. Uh, And we've got some products in the market now, our Sweet Carnival, our Stella Bella, our Sparkle, our Rosa, our Gem, and they're very well followed in in the retail sectors and even overseas. You've got to be innovative to put something on the shelf that the consumer wants. We also have to find something that's not as susceptible that the productivity per acre is up, that it colors evenly, that it, you know, you can go in and harvest it easier. I mean, there's all these different components that go into it driven by those challenges that we're having in California. We've got to really push, push the limit here. So we keep talking about how Sunview is a third generation family owned company. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? The one family is the Zaninovich family, and they are third, almost fourth generation. I think passion coming from the family really drives the innovation first and foremost. Believe it or not, a family-run company where you have a clear decision-making tree, you're not necessarily in a committee or have to go to a board, gives us an enormous amount of agility. For instance, if someone were to happen upon us with some sort of new packaging design or something innovative in another produce sector, even in another food sector that we see, then it's very easy for us to 
take that, maybe put it into some trials and then basically turn on a dime and start to implement it. If there's so much value to it, it's very, very, very hard to be an owner operator who's on the ranch every single day. Yeah. I, I, it, it's just the competitive nature of it. The, the ability to notice the subtle changes, the agility piece. It's hard for corporate farming to beat a full-scale family farm day in and day out, I think. Let's face it, it's more fun that way too, right? You, you mentioned that Sunview has their own breeding department, which is amazing. And they own their own farm. They grow and harvest and market only their own grapes. How does that help you stay innovative? What distinguishes us from other folks is that we really own the whole grape category soup to nuts. I mean, it starts in the embryonic stage with the breeding program. We have our own commercial nursery where we're controlling the plants that go into the ground. Then we have our normal table grape operation with production and distribution, the whole cold chain. And then whatever doesn't get used there, we usually utilize it for raisins. And our raisins are fantastic. Our raisins are, are, are frankly, they're not the typical raisin. They're really big. Um, I think in a typical raisin, you're going to get about a thousand pieces per pound. And in ours, we get about 400 pieces per pound. It's a pretty unique product. Oh my yeah. gosh. And then you have the wine part and, and we own three wineries. We have a winery in Napa and we have a winery in Northern California. And then we have a winery just right out here outside of the parking lot. We just did an audit the other day. It's 99.9% of the product is used in one of our businesses. So there's very, very, very little product that, that goes unused. So what's the biggest impediment to innovation as it relates to table grapes? It's challenging for us to, to make sure we get enough value out of our current product line in order to invest in that innovation. Domestic retail especially is, is going through challenging times. The cost of doing business in California keeps going up every, every year. And, and I'll tell you right now, it's eating up quite a bit of our budget that could be going to innovation, whether it's taxes, whether it's water, whether it's insurance. We've all heard about the pallet scenarios this year with pallets going up and boxes going up and materials going up. It's challenging. What's on the horizon for Sendio? got a few different projects in the loop. We're probably going to have three or four new varieties being released over the next couple of years that we're excited about. We're excited to start traveling a little bit more again and get into markets. We, we have been doing a little. There's some packaging things that we're working on that would achieve both a sustainability or recycle, recyclability component, as well as hopefully making it more efficient. Mitch, it was so nice speaking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that was really interesting to hear from our sponsor, Sunview, from Mitch Wetzel's perspective, all their innovations, the way that they've navigated all the challenges of late, and just everything that they're doing in the table grape category. Um, and the... Uh, oh, yeah. How are you handling vaccination policies or or suggestions <laughs> or? Yeah. And so uh, we have we have been pretty proactive. We have had vaccine events at our farms 
Um, we have been encouraging all of our associates to get vaccinated, doing that with incentives um, at each of our farms. And then in time, we are we are hoping to move forward a vaccine mandate that would look at, you know, complete vaccination across our system. But we want to make sure that our people have the time to comply and, and um, as we roll that out. Um, but certainly, you know, it has been a focus for us um, to educate our, our, our farm teams and our, I, I'm sitting today in what we call our FSC, which is our farm support center. It's also known as, it, it's what you would consider our headquarters, but we consider it our farm support center. Um, and we've been really successful in driving really um, with some pretty strong vaccination rates across our whole network. Uh, and we'll continue to do so. Um, Very good. Yeah, that's that's um, that's an interesting challenge now for the whole country to figure out that last little bit of distance between what we need to do with vac vaccinations and maybe not necessarily where everybody wants to go, but you know, it might be the direction that needs to be taken. Yeah, we have we have just really focused on keeping our people safe from day one. And so mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, we, we encouraged our workers to stay home, even the, in the event of an exposure with pay, I think we build up a lot of trust and we build up a lot of credibility with our teams mm -hmm. so that when the vaccines became available, um, for the most part, our teams wanted to do it for each other. There's so much industry news and, and buzz about indoor operations, greenhouses. Um, what do you think the future holds? Uh, I know, um, you know you look for just close alignments with retailers and kind of becoming, becoming identified with particular retailers and uh, maybe private label or you know, consolidation. There's so many different things you could think about in there. But uh, what are your thoughts about how perhaps Bright Farms might evolve and all that? I think when we look at it, you know, the, the salad category, depending how you slice it and dice it in retail is, is somewhere around $7 billion, right? Somewhere mm -hmm. between six and eight, depending on what you, what you include. And so there are a lot of salads to be sold. <laughs> and today, you know, the indoor farms make up somewhere between two and 3% of those sales. So despite all of this growth, despite all of the investment that has gone into indoor farming, we are still at the very, very beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, with large retail partners, those that spread multiple geographies, it's really difficult to be working with five or six or maybe more indoor players in different markets with different assortments, with different geographies that they can cover. And I think, Customers are looking for solutions that make it easy for them to participate um, and for them to be part of this transformation. And at Bright Farms, that's, that's what we seek to do. We're going to build a network of farms that enable retailers to participate in local indoor farming, but do it in a way that works with their geography and, and with their network. And you know, today we have six commercial scale farms down the East Coast and into the Midwest, but, you know, we're just getting started. And our goal is really to cover the map of the U.S. in the next five years. So is that a, a way so that like a, a retail customer 
can just have one company that they're buying from for a large area, but it'll also be local at the same time um, yeah. for each yeah. of the stores, kind of the best yeah. of both worlds of having a. Yeah. And we do that for our partners today. So for our partners that span multiple geographies, we, we use different farms to service different distribution centers so that we can get them the closest and most local product available and the fact that we have a network of farms also creates redundancy because we know that produce is living and breathing and there are spikes in demand, there are spikes in production, there are, there are all sorts of reasons why things can go up or down. And while we all try to avoid those, they happen. And so our network of farms um, creates a redundant supply so that if we're working with a customer that typically pulls from our Ohio farm on any given day, but they have a strong spike in demand, we can also supply them from our Illinois farm or maybe our Pennsylvania farm. That's never our plan, you know, from, from day one. We want to minimize the amount of miles that we're driving, that we're driving product around the U.S., um, but we also want to make sure that our customers' orders are filled 100% day in and day out and that they can rely on us for a consistent supply. And so our network of farms really enable us to do that. And so for, the, for our retail partners that we work with that are you know, in, in multiple regions across the U.S., that's really been um, a real source of confidence and credibility in the way our model works because we can so we can really support their supply from multiple farms if needed. Is this kind of the standard way that that CEA works for retailers? Not necessarily. I think there's a lot of different models for CEA out there right now. There are single farm operators, there are multi-farm operators, sometimes they're in connected geographies, sometimes they're not. Um, we tend to think that there will be some consolidation in the space because, you know, operating these farms on a single unit basis is difficult. You know, the, the, the structure and the size of the group that you need behind, behind the farm, ensuring that you've got the right amount of support for customers to, to grow a successful program is significant. So it's much, it's, it's easier to spread that across multiple farms. And so I think, we will start to see some consolidation in the space. Obviously, our acquisition of LEAF is an example of that. Okay. Um, and to take a little divergent path, the um, Food Safety Coalition, the CEA, yeah. um, we had heard recently that we, they were getting close to having a, a label um, that they're certified and that might show up in on packages and stores sometime soonish. That, that is absolutely true. And while I don't want to speak for the CA food safety coalition, um, I want to make sure I, I give them the opportunity to speak on their own behalf. It is a really exciting group of indoor growers who are working together to make sure that food safety is not a competitive issue. We feel like this is the one place where everyone should bring their best thinking to the table and we should all benefit from the learnings of each other. Obviously, you know, um, some types of indoor farmer, farming are newer than others. Many of the, the things that we're learning um, are, are new to the industry. And so the more that we can all benefit from that learning and share that with each other, the better it is for the consumer and the better it is for our industry as a whole. So, 
you know, we're excited about, you know, being a part of that group and having a leadership role in that group. And um, yes, more to come there in terms of, you know, creating standards across the group that we will all um, that we will align to and, and communicate in the same way. Okay. So whenever that does happen, your, your uh, packages of, of salads will, will have that label. Yes. Likely. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So yeah, the future of indoor CEA, uh, possibly consolidation to make more economies of scale, basically, right? Um, yeah. More costs. Because I mean, high tech, just by its nature, it's very, very, very expensive to start up, right? Um, yeah, these the the greenhouses that we build are quite expensive, uh, as are you know the vertical farms of some of our competitors. So you know when you find the secret sauce, which which we think we have, um, you know for for bright farms, um, yes. you know it's it's certainly um, it, there. A lot of learning went into the first few farms that we built, and every one since then has only gotten better. And so I think iteration helps. I think having a team that's now been been doing this for almost 10 years has helped. And so um, I think we're we're on the path um, to really building out a network from what we've learned and others and, and, and others are um, on a different but similar path as well. And you did put it in perspective uh, saying how this kind of... Uh, sector of the leafy greens um, is really only two to three percent or so. Yeah, if you look at the whole salad category, we're yeah. in low single digits still. Um, so while, you know, the, the growth continues to, you know, escalate in pace every year, the growth is really um, only, only held back by the, the capacity that enables us mm. to put that out there. It's a little bit like organic, right? It can take up to three year, years from a, for a field to transition from conventional to organic. It's a little bit like that in indoor. The difference, though, is just that we need to go out and build the farms. So there's a lot of pent-up demand out there. It's just a matter of getting the capacity to, to be able to meet that demand. I think if capacity were able to grow faster in 2021, you would have seen much stronger growth. Um, but you know, we, we had a little bit of a, a slowdown in growth, um, across the industry given COVID and, and now you're seeing that catch up. Although we did open our farm in North Carolina, right smack in the middle of the pandemic, which was an achievement in itself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. I mean, there's so much of, of industry interaction, elbow to elbow visiting about, what's going on and to, that you missed out on that and everybody did, but the, what are you looking forward to as, as we you know get ready to head into 2022? I'm sure some of the events are going to be uh, good for bright farms and you're looking forward to those. Uh, what else are you, you know, looking forward to both on your at a personal level, perhaps uh, involvement in associations and, and for the company, what, what are you looking forward to next year? Yeah, so definitely thrilled that we will now be seeing the industry out and about in events. Um, and so we, we've missed that, you know, as a, as a growing company, it's a big part of how we get out and tell our message. So we're excited to do that. Um, I'm personally thrilled for my new role. 
uh, in the on, on the board of directors and the International Fresh Produce Association. So thank you for that plug, Tom. <laughs> and I will also be be chairing the marketing and merchandising council of that group as well. So um, you know, I think the whole industry is ready to get back at it. Um, and I think we learned a lot over the last couple of years and now's the opportunity to get out and sort of share that amongst, uh, amongst our peers and our colleagues and get back to just growing as fast as we can. Yeah. The, actually the first time I heard about the leaf, I mean, well, I guess it, it might've come through, it probably came through our desk, but, um, it really stuck with me when I was at the New England Produce Council's uh, event. And that might have been one of my first events in a long time uh, in person. And I stopped by uh, Bright Farms booth and saw the Leaf Farms clamshell next to the Bright Farms clamshell and was like, oh, there's something yeah. about how it really, you know, sticks with you more when you're there physically and and can talk about it and even like hold something. Um, well, thank so. you. We appreciate you stopping by and we will, we will be at the New York produce show in just about a month as well. So that that'll kick us off a little early for 2022. We'll probably see you there then. Great. <laughs> um, uh, my final thought was uh, something I had seen um, the Bright Farm CEO, Steve Platt had predicted 50% of leafy greens will be grown indoors in the next 10 years? Yeah, I think so, right? Um, and, and like <laughs> I said, it's just a matter of capacity catching up to demand. Right. Consumers are speaking. Consumers love the products, right? They love the freshness. They love the crunch. They love everything about it. And so our plan at Bright Farms is going to be to dramatically increase our number of growing acres over the next five years. We're going to go from 10 to 15 to well over 100. Um, and so, you know, I, we won't be the only ones that are, that are um, expanding capacity. And I think retailers are, are, are ready to start thinking about that transition as well. Um, they are hearing from consumers that they want product that is more sustainable, that is more local. And um, they're, they're really starting to think about how, how to make that happen on a larger scale. So yes, that's a, it's a bold comment by Steve, but I think it's one that is really achievable in that time frame. Did you have any final thoughts, Tom? No, I, I think I've just enjoyed seeing Abby and hearing more about what's ahead. So again, thanks. Thanks for being with us today. Abby. Absolutely. It was great to see you both. Thanks for having me. Hopefully I'll see you in a month. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. See you soon. Hey everyone. That wraps it up for us today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to hit that subscribe button, rate us and type out a quick review on whatever platform you use to listen to tip of the iceberg. It really, really helps us out. We also want you to enjoy our earlier episodes. There are so many. I think there might be 64 before this one. And in our last two, we talked to Ashley Trenier, founder of and CEO of Farmbox Direct, about how her most recent initiative, Farmbox RX, is transforming healthcare with a prescription for affordable, accessible, fresh produce delivery. And the week before, we talked to Rebel Bank Fruit 
vegetable and nut analyst, Almohanad Melhem, on his data-based predictions for organic produce post-pandemic. That's a beautiful word, right? Post-pandemic. Anyway, we will have more of those great conversations from the industry each week. Thanks so much for your support. If you're listening to this before or on November 25th, I also want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. 